This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to the case of a young teen who was found dead in a Vancouver suburb in July of 2017. No stone will be left unturned. As Mounties did their best to sue the rattled public, those who live near Burnaby, sprawling Central Park. It's dark, rugged, easy to lose your way lived in fear. It's pretty frightening just to come back knowing that somebody could have been out there. I have a 16-year-old and, you know, it could have been my daughter. As friends and strangers alike grieve the 13-year-old's death. I don't miss her. To me, she, she's an angel. That, that, that's what she is. The months stretched on without arrest and renewed appeals for help came from investigators. I need everybody to look at these characteristics, these seven points. This is somebody that we believe may have lived in the area of Burnaby Central Park. Finally, more than a year after the teen was found dead. Over 2,000 persons of interest were identified and subsequently eliminated. An arrest. That suspect is in custody. 28-year-old Ibrahim Ali. A Burnaby man from Syria, a refugee new to Canada, not known to police. Spawning a wave of rage against the suspect. but also fanning the flames of anti-immigrant sentiment simmering under the surface. This isn't about race, but it is about keeping our borders safe. We feel sorry for Marisa Sen. David Molko joins me now. And David, you've been covering the story since the very beginning. What was it like that very first day when I had first told us that uh, Marissa had met an untimely end? Well, I remember this even before that, when we got to Central Park that morning and the entire park, not just part of it, the entire park was surrounded by police tape. If you know how big Central Park is, you get an idea of that. The golf course, everything was roped off. We had a sense that something big had happened. We could tell from the amount of police presence on the ground something big had happened. No one knew quite what. No one knew who the victim was. We knew we knew somebody had been killed. It wasn't till we got to the Burnaby RCMP detachment in the afternoon when they called a press conference and you walk into the room and they had a map of, of Central Park with a circle in the area that they had roped off or were focused on. And next to that, there was a picture of what looked like a young girl, maybe 10, 11, 12, um, Asian, wearing a, a dress with some sort of bow on it. And at that moment, you know, your heart just kind of sinks because you know exactly what you're getting into and um, we didn't expect what happened next which was just that it got so much more complicated than we would have imagined. This wasn't just a story about uh, a girl going missing or even a girl getting murdered. It was much more than that. Because this investigation ended up spawning 14 months. Like This was a really prolonged... We did a bunch of follow-up stories, and as a reporter, you had to kind of keep working a story to keep it in the public eye, even when there wasn't a lot of detail to report. There was almost no detail on this one, and that isn't unusual for these types of crimes. I mean, police do what they say. They they say it's hold-back evidence, so if they were ident- to identify whoever committed this crime, only that person, he or she, would know some of the details where the body was found, if there was a sexual assault and all of that. As, as a reporter, though, and you can understand this, it's incredibly frustrating sometimes when you're trying to ask the questions, get, get answers to them. Um, they finally opened up the scene, so sort of the perimeter shrunk over the following day, day or two or three, and we were finally able to get <clears throat> into the location where they had found Marissa's body, and, and that's always sort of a a, a moment of when you're able to get close enough to something like this and of course understanding the sensitivity of it at the same time but the crime tape had come down it was in a wooded area of the park off the main trails um, 
some strange things were going on. You're just observing, you're listening, you're looking around, seeing this for the first time, not knowing what's there. I remember uh, over here there was a a tent and a bicycle like kind of roped off behind police tape. So had someone been living in the woods where they connected? We didn't know. We found uh, drug paraphernalia, porn magazines, receipts from uh, Surrey, uh, not only the yellow crime tape, but then orange tape within that marked like with things specific like area one and area three and we were able to kind of identify where they found her body or the scene of the crime potentially we don't know um but in those following days weren't really getting a lot of answers until finally the police say you know we're gonna hold another update we think it was random we don't think you know uh, and when you hear the word random you're like well should that make the public feel better should that not make the public feel better and so in this one it was just more and more questions. And that, I think, is what actually made it really scary and alarmed a lot of people, because it's one thing for a girl to be to go missing, uh, to turn up dead, but then when you hear random, uh, you know, probably unprovoked, like, that's the kind of thing that it goes from, oh, maybe she had a crazy ex-boyfriend, or, you know, you concoct all sorts of things in your head to say, well, that doesn't affect me, and all of a sudden then, well, this could happen to anybody. And that's really the scariest part, and you don't know, did, did Marissa know her killer? Did they have any relationship? Was she followed? And all these questions go through your head. And they're not questions we're just asking, but they're questions that the, the community is asking, the neighborhood is asking. I mean, this is a huge popular urban park with joggers and walkers and cyclists all hours of the day and night, people of all ages. And And remember, this was the middle of summer. I mean... The last time Marissa was spotted, which we didn't find out until later, there's this whole timeline question, which we can get into if you want, um, was at a Tim Hortons near Metrotown having a snack and leaving around 7 o'clock on a summer afternoon in July. You know, we know from having talked to friends who knew her, people who were stopping by this memorial, which was growing and growing and growing. She loved the park. She loved to pop her earbuds in. She loved to go for a walk. She was a quiet teenager. You know, she hadn't even started ninth grade. Um... But she was just out in the park, as far as we know, just having an evening, still light out. I mean, like any other other kid, right? And I seem to recall there was a lot of misinformation and rumors going around at the time that there was a film shoot in the park, that all sorts of different stuff. So how did you try to sort out fact from fiction and what to report versus what was rumor mongering and because people are going to talk anytime something like this happens especially when you know a a murder has occurred but how did you how do you try to sift through that in terms of what you put on air i think the most important thing in in any story like this is that we don't lose sight of the victim in this case marissa shen because she's no longer with us her family is deeply affected so when we rep- when I report on stories like this, I always think of, okay, what if her family was watching? Would they be happy with the coverage? And maybe happy isn't the right word, but would they feel that it was being approached in, in a way that was sort of respectful and responsible? We do that with all stories, but I think in a case like this, especially, especially a homicide or a murder, uh, when you keep that in the back of your mind, I think it helps too. Um, it wasn't, I wouldn't say our job is necessarily to to sort out sort of truth from fiction. Of course, we're not going to throw speculation and rumors on the air, but the fact that there was a TV show filming in those woods all night long is incredibly relevant. And there were people, I'd say, 50 meters, if not closer, to the place her body was found. I mean, we got no answers from 
ABC, I think, was filming was Once Upon a Time. Uh, very few comments from IHIT about whether or not there may have been a connection, only to say that those folks were cooperating too. But it's a fair question. I mean, if there's a crew of dozens or, or hundreds in the woods uh, cl- close to where this crime happened, then of course that has to be raised too. How hard was it to try to kind of keep this story relevant so that people would pay attention? I mean, IHIT would give us some updates and they'd say, well, there's nothing new specifically, but, you know, we've interviewed a couple hundred people and we're making an appeal for more tips. And there was just, I felt like they were trying to keep it out there, which is part of their job because they want to, you know, stimulate more tips and discussion and stuff. But how hard is it when there's, we're in a visual medium, there's not a lot to see that's really at all because we, you know, we're never going to show a crime scene in the first place. But how hard is it to try to keep a story that's going to engage our viewers and make people think, okay, have I seen or heard anything unusual, whether it's there or, or stemming from that? Uh, it can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, in this case, what we had early on was video of Marissa Shen returning to her building at some point. And it wasn't, there was all this sort of confusion and discrepancy. Well, why are they showing this video of her coming back to her building if she was seen leaving her building? And then we find out later, no, they're showing us her her coming back because it was the clearest visual of what she was wearing. But it kind of took a while to kind of get to that. You know, we had a few pictures of her. I'd say the video that uh, really made people pay more attention is, I think, about six months in, roughly, when they released that video from the Tim Hortons. And it was sort of this moment that said, "Uh uh-huh, we know she was somewhere else. We know that the timeline is narrowing. Everybody can identify with that. Everyone knows where this place is right next to Metrotown. And now we're getting a better sense of, sure, there's still a five and a half hour gap in the timeline, but, but this is making more sense. Now people can relate to what she was doing. She was going for a snack. She might have gone for a walk in the park. And that, uh, I think, got people to pay more attention than anything else. But, you know, through this whole thing, too, you kept having these appeals, as you, as you mentioned, Penny, and you know what this is. Anything really, and they're just casting this wide net. And um, I remember that police, and this was probably a week in, two weeks in, were asking video for video specifically from uh, the vigil that had been held at the park around this makeshift memorial. And they were asking for anyone that had video from her funeral. It was an oddly specific request, leading us all to sort of believe that whoever had committed this crime was at one of those, or we may have crossed paths with this person unknowingly. Um, But they just weren't really forthcoming about answering those questions, which led us to believe, well, do they really have anything? And as we talk to experts, criminologists like Rob Gordon and SFU, who say, you know, they're just casting a wide net. This is what they do. They probably don't have any leads. And... It seemed to be that seemed to be the case in the end. That raised a lot of eyebrows, that request in the newsroom. Everyone was like, how are they? Because oftentimes you see it at uh, fire scenes all the time. There's generally somebody there from the fire department who's filming who's coming by to watch the fire because oftentimes fire bugs will go back. So I was kind of surprised that they wouldn't have had I hit wouldn't have had somebody documenting these events already. So it made you wonder well, what happened after the fact to make them think that maybe that person had come back? And we've never had that question answered. No, we haven't. And I, I'm sure they were watching, though. I, I'm positive they were watching. There's no doubt that uh, patrols were stepped up in the park immediately after, whether it was on bike and foot. And I'm sure there were plainclothes officers in different spots. How wide a net did they cast? I, you know, I guess we'll never know. I'm not a policing expert. I'm not a detective. You know, I'm a journalist, so I'm the one that's asking the questions and sometimes frustratingly not getting the answers. Uh, I do just want to mention uh, Marissa's older brother, Peter, who was 
He's, he was in college in Beijing at the time. He flew home when he heard the news. Uh, talking to victims or family members of victims of crimes like this can be incredibly difficult. We, it's, and you know this, too, from your experience. You want to reach out and you want to be respectful and you want to say, hi, if there's anything you want to share, we're here. But at the same time, you don't want to be intrusive yet. It's that tricky balance because sometimes we do find, like in the case of Peter Shen, he had nothing to say for the first couple of weeks. He wanted his privacy, and then he sort of said, "Well, if we're not having, if they're not making any headway, or I feel like they're not making any headway, then I have to do everything I can to find my sister's killer to help find my sister's killer." And that was when he decided to make a public appeal. And it was again this sort of delicate sort of relationship we built where we talked online, then we talked on the phone, and he said, sure, let's sit down. It's important to me, but I don't want to show my face because I don't want the attention on me. I want the attention on Marissa. And that was a tough one for us too. But when you kind of talk to someone, understand where they're coming from, again, that extreme sensitivity, um, and then you understand where he was coming from. And so we agreed to do it. And I think we're the only ones who actually um, ended up with a TV interview with him. And I think to some extent it probably helped and kept the momentum going on this case. Because I think that sometimes people accuse us of being vultures or of being terrible for trying to get those interviews, but there is a lot of stuff on TV. There are a lot of news articles out there. There's a lot of information. And when you can see how much it means to a family when it's not just a name, it's not just another police officer saying something, but when you can see a family is hurting and that they need some information, they need some help, I think that that actually breaks through a lot of that and can really spur people to maybe come forward with a bit of information they either felt was inconsequential or they felt uncomfortable with. Like, personally, whenever I see or hear somebody hurting like that, you just connect with a story in a completely different way, and it's very, very powerful. No, I completely agree with you, and, and sort of the the tough part comes in is when, you know, we don't like to knock on anyone's door when they've been the victim of crime or relative of someone who was murdered or anything like that. You know, it's not, it's not something we enjoy doing. It's part of the job in a sense because you have to ask the question. You have to. You have to ask it respectfully, and if someone says to you, if Peter had said, you know what, I'm really don't want to talk. I don't think I'm going to. Could you please, you know, not contact me again? I respect that completely, but you're right in a sense that asking that question, whatever it is, can lead to all sorts of leads, not only in a case like this, but allow someone to sort of tell their story. And it's important that no matter what the circumstances, we always offer these folks the opportunity to tell their story. And sometimes they want to talk. There was a case a, a couple of years ago of a, um, a, she was an exchange student or she was here visiting as a student, um, a young girl from Japan. Her body was found in the West End. And through an interpreter, I was able to um, talk with her mother over Skype in Japan. And it wasn't a very long interview. It was just really brief because we just wanted to hear what this girl was like just to try to get some, to humanize her as part of the story. And her mother was so emotional and so grateful that we cared about somebody that wasn't even Canadian, that was not a local. Uh, and we wanted to put out that, inform- that information to help find I think she was actually still missing at the time. I don't think that they'd found her body yet, come to think of it. And she was just so grateful that we cared. And sometimes just giving people that opportunity, it's, it's just 
giving them that chance. And sometimes they really want to take you up on it. And it's surprising sometimes. Other times it's very difficult. But you just I find if you're just open with them, they respond in kind generally. Yeah, and I'd say, and also picking your moments. Like if we we talk about Peter Shen, Marissa's older brother, this was an interview that probably happened uh, two or three months after his sister was murdered. Um, and just recently, you know, uh, I saw him in court, the first court appearance for the suspect. Well, you know, we can talk about the arrest and the suspect. But it's sort of knowing when and when not to. Like, it would not, I could have said hi to him in, in court, but it would not have been sort of the right time for me to go up to him and try to have a long conversation with him and stop him outside. I just, you know, that was his moment to sort of sit and, and come to terms with what was happening. And uh, he didn't need one of us taking that away from him. And so that's a whole nother chapter because uh, in the past week I hit made a big announcement that they had arrested somebody that Crown had laid first degree murder charges um, so long after the fact. And uh, I think this came as a surprise to a lot of us because it seemed that this case had gone cold and then it just um, now enters another phase of, of storytelling as well as a journalist to, to remind people what was going on and then to try to dig into who is this suspect? Well, it's true. And I mean, we had just passed the one year anniversary in July and that was really, that was really nothing. It was another public appeal saying we're looking for more video. We're looking for more witnesses. They didn't release, I think they released a new picture of Marissa, uh, but that was about it. And then come two months later, you know, on that Monday morning, I remember waking up and seeing a, a Twitter alert from IHIT saying, you know, significant development in Marissa Shen case. And I'm like, well, that can only mean one thing. It can only mean they have someone or they have, you know, they've made an arrest or, or something along those lines. And it's sort of, you know, you catch your breath and then you're like, I didn't expect this. And you're like, OK, let's see. And you go. And then, of course, we have learned uh, since then that it was a, um, a recent uh, Syrian refugee who'd come to Canada, uh, who's the suspect in her killing. And I got to say, the scene outside court really surprised me. We knew that there was going to be a vigil um, from the Syrian Canadian community for for Marissa because it, a young child being taken. It's it's heartbreaking. But then, when counter demonstrators showed up and there was this ugly scene at the courthouse, I mean, that is something I think that caught everybody by. I mean, that was a shock. No more victims. No more victims. No more victims. No more victims. We need to care more about the safety of the Canadians who are here than thinking about how to, you know, uh, protect all human beings on the planet. This is Canada. This should be a safe place for Canadian yeah. citizens. For if this was your daughter, I'm sure you'd have a different tone. And it's yes. upsetting it to is. see anybody every upset single, uh, and not caring about this family. Every this family is important today. There are some elements out there, uh, be it... Uh, online on social media sort of the anonymous the troll element or um you know extreme conservatives or anti-immigration advocates and i want to choose my words carefully here because everybody has a you know a right to their own position um and and in cases like this i think it's perfectly fair to ask questions about canada's immigration system and immigration checks and we're hearing that from everybody even syrian canadians are saying yeah of course you should ask questions about this why wouldn't you ask questions about that is it too early to do that because he hasn't been convicted no of course it's fine to ask these questions um but we want to do that and and do it from a place of 
kind of integrity and respect like we would ask anything else. So in the days, in the kind of days between his arrest and court that same week, uh, you know, we're talking to a lot of local organizations. You talk to some of them as well that deal with refugees saying, well, why is the story all about him being a refugee now? Why is it about, you know, a refugee being arrested for first degree murder? And I tried to explain to people, well, we know almost nothing about this guy. We know his age. We know he came here. We know he was a Syrian refugee. And that's it. If you can help us find out more, then we'd be happy to forge a more complete picture. Um, And so we eventually did. And I can understand the sensitivity around that as well. As you say, a a lot of the settlement groups that help bring in, um, either they were helping the government bring in and settle refugees, or they help provide community supports for refugees who were sponsored by churches or families or other means, and they didn't want the discussion to be about the fact that he's a Syrian refugee, but you cannot help but that has to be an issue. It has to be something that we discuss. Like you say, the screening and vetting procedures, there were a lot of concerns brought up uh, about the uh, government bringing in 25,000 refugees all at once, and was it going to be overloaded? We have done our own journalism. Uh, to uh, There was an Auditor General's report that found that the Canadian Border Services and the RCMP, the database that was supposed to be screening a lot of these refugees was not being kept up to date. The system had failed. We knew that a year and a half ago. We knew that for, for a long time. Now, that's to say it's very different from the proliferation of hate and the vile comments that we saw on social media within minutes of the revelation that he was a, a Syrian refugee. So there's, there's a difference in how we can talk about is our government doing uh, its due diligence in bringing in people, which we want to do as compassionate human beings, versus the hateful comments. And then you, you also have to cover that as well, though, just to show the sentiment that's out there. Oh, I completely agree. But, you know, I call that out and I, I completely agree with your point and and in the sense of the comments that are raising questions and then the comments which I said on the air last week the comments that are racist and ignorant because they are and and people sending me personal tweets saying oh shame on you you should be fired by CTV for reporting on this and you have people on both sides trying to sort of hack you down for trying to dig into it and and show uh all sides of the story here. The thing I will say about the suspect in this case, Ibrahim Ali, and then we can, and then we can talk about court um, and outside, is that we as journalists would treat this and him the same as any other suspect. So we're going to look into all the details about it. Absolutely. All the questions. It doesn't matter whether he came as a Syrian refugee. It doesn't matter whether this is somebody that, you know, was born and raised in Burnaby and never traveled outside Canada. Uh, we're going to ask the same questions. We're going to look into it. We're going to get to the bottom of it and try, try to get some answers. And so then... A lot of people may still not realize that Canadian court is different from American court and that we cannot have any cameras in there. So we rely on the journalists and we rely on some sketch artists to talk to us about exactly what it was like. But in this case, uh, oftentimes when we go to court, there's just a couple of journalists in there and a bunch of lawyers. The courtroom's mostly empty. In this case, it was overflow. They had to turn people away, paint us a picture of what it was like actually there that first day when Ali did show up uh, for that first court appearance. Well, I mean, you knew as soon as you were outside provincial court on Main Street that this was not going to be your regular first appearance. You know, you could tell. We knew that the Syrian Canadians, some of them, um, a group of them, were going to come out in support to show their support for Marissa Shen's family. You know, it was whole this sort of thought of um, not wanting this issue to stigmatize the entire community or to paint all Syrian Canadians with a broad brush. They're out in front of it, and they're going to light some candles. Uh, what we didn't expect was this huge 
and I say probably huge, when I say huge, probably, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people, um, from the Asian community, really out and about in full force with banners that said things like, uh, no bail, no more victims, Justin Trudeau, where are you? And then leading each other in sort of these loud, uh, vociferous chants of no bail, no more victims, and all of that. I think most of them, and I would say 95% of both Sides, And I use the word sides lightly because I think everybody here sort of wants the same thing. And that's justice for Marissa Shen. And that was my impression. I think most of them wanted to show their support for the family. I think you had within that people raising questions again about uh, the immigration checks and the robustness of that. You had people sort of worried about their own kind of family's personal safety. And then you had a few people who kind of didn't fit with the rest, I would say, who chose to I was to just going to say there was a third, almost a third group of people who were just there to question immigration policy as a whole. And that's their right, too. And it's their right, too. And like it or not, I mean, this case, and again, let's not forget 13-year-old Marissa Shen, like it or not, this is this case has become politicized to some degree as well, um, and there are fair questions to ask. But, you know, when you, when I approached the lady who was leading the group and the chance of, where are you, Trudeau? And I said, why are you asking that? Is it about um, his immigration policy? Is it about, you know, um, something else? And she said, no, 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 it's just... Uh, this is so important to us and we've lost, you know, this beautiful girl and he hasn't said anything. We want him to say something about this case, anything. So, uh, you know, when you see something at the end of the day and you sort of on the news, let's say, and hopefully for doing your jobs, uh, there's always more nuance there. It's never that black and white. Right. And so I think it was our, our sort of job to try to convey that nuance. And the other thing, too, is I talked about the Syrian Canadians there and then members of the Asian community there. And there was also a bit of crossing over. So it wasn't like they were shouting at each other. They were shouting the same things. And then you had some members from one side passing out these white roses who went over to, like, Mohammed al-Saleh. He's a very prominent refugee himself from four years ago, very active in the community, and handed him a rose. So you had this sort of moment of the community coming together and uniting behind this cause, which was supporting Morris's family and, and justice in this case. If we skip ahead to court then, you had almost everybody from the streets trying to pack into this courtroom. It's a pretty big courtroom, but they're not all going to fit in there. Um, and there were delays and this and that, and they had to call for a translator. And so it kept getting pushback, pushback, everybody out, everybody in, people trying to take pictures in the courtroom, which is not allowed in Canada. And eventually, there was this moment um, when they called the case and they brought him into the dock, Ibrahim Ali, into the dock. And we see him for the first time. Um, and there was this sort of, I don't say a gasp, but there's a moment where everybody sort of caught their breath, at least behind me, audibly. I could hear people kind of catch their breath and say, oh, this is the guy who allegedly did it. Oh, my God. And it was just sort of a moment. And it was a short appearance, and you watch him, and he's sort of expressionless, and he's listening to the translator and listening to the judge. And things are kind of clicking in my brain. I'm trying to sort of observe as much as possible. And I'm left at the end of this just thinking, what the heck happened? Like, you know, no charge has been proven in court. He's charged. He hasn't been convicted of a crime. But, like, I mean, for them to charge him for first-degree murder, this guy that wasn't even on the radar, 28 years old, came here with his family, has three brothers, you know. As far as we can tell, like, the family, according to his lawyer, is puzzled by the whole thing, too what the heck happened and it just sort of leaves you with this sense of there's a really long journey ahead not only for him but for marissa's family it just sort of leaves you with this kind of profound sense of sadness 
Well, and I'm sure we're going to cover this topic again on a future podcast as it winds its way through the system. And we do learn more about him through uh, your hard work on the story from day one. So thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Gerald Christensen for his help with archival audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daflos. Penny Daflos.